0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.
1: Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. Resources are being thrown at vaccine development as it is seen as saving the world from the pandemic that has brought economic engines across much of the world to a standstill. In this episode of Inside COVID-19, we hear from our partners at Bloomberg why the obsession with vaccines may be a bad strategy. We also have an update on herd immunity and the growing movement for an alternative to lockdowns, the Great Barrington Declaration. Also coming up, we pick up with leading South African health policy expert, Professor Alan Whiteside, for a look at where the world is in the fight against COVID 19. And Discovery Vitality shares how it has awarded extra points to its members to compensate for the challenges of leading a healthy life in the era of COVID 19. First, the COVID 19 headlines. Swedes face a new wave of restrictions after daily coronavirus cases hit a record with the government warning of a grim winter ahead. Prime Minister Stefan Löfven, speaking to reporters on Tuesday, said his country is now facing a very serious situation that requires tougher measures if the virus is to be fought back. The resurgence of COVID-19 across Europe has caught the region off guard after a summer that left many countries assuming they'd brought the virus under control. But as citizens grew complacent and temperatures dropped, the pandemic has returned with a vengeance. Bloomberg reports that the Greek city of Thessaloniki has been placed into a general lockdown as of Tuesday and it has tightened the measures to contain the spread of the virus in the rest of the country. The Netherlands reports 64,000 new cases in the past week. J.P. Morgan joined rivals in asking the majority of its employees in England to work from home following government rules to stop a surge in coronavirus infections. The Wall Street Bank told staff in a memo that most workers will be required to work from home from Thursday until further notice. The new measures mean that about 5% of workers will be in the office. Denmark's Prime Minister has cancelled appearances at Parliament and with the press on Tuesday after learning she may have been exposed to the virus. Romania reported a single-day record of coronavirus infections with more than 7,700 new cases on Tuesday, coupled with a daily record of 120 deaths, says Blomberg. The Vice President and Prime Minister of the United Arab Emirates has become the latest high-ranking official in the country to receive a coronavirus vaccine, says Bloomberg. Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum, the ruler of the UAE Emirate of Dubai, said he was vaccinated on Tuesday. Phase 3 trials for a shot developed by China's Sinopharm Group started in the UAE in July, and the country granted emergency approval for its use in healthcare workers in September. The number of new cases in Iran has jumped to the highest on record at 8,932. The Middle East's worst-hit nation now has more than 36,000 deaths. Malaysia will impose the conditional movement control order in the Seremban district from November the 5th to November the 18th, that's according to its government which says the restrictions will be similar to those in other areas. Hong Kong will require all travelers who have been outside mainland China within 14 days before their flights to quarantine in a hotel for two weeks upon arrival. Serbians defying the order to wear face masks will soon have to pay the equivalent of fifty U.S. dollars on the spot if caught by the police. The Philippines will store coronavirus vaccines in military camps once they are available. The Lenovo Group reported a record quarterly profit after booking one-time gains and selling more PCs to meet remote work and study needs. The Chinese company, which kept its position at the top of the worldwide PC market, saw net income increase by more than 50% in the September quarter, beating analysts' estimates. Australia's central bank has cut interest rates and announced a new bond-buying program as it seeks to ensure a rapid recovery across an economy now free of lockdowns. The Thai government is studying the possibility of reducing mandatory quarantine to 10 days from 14 to attract more foreign visitors. Inside COVID-19, from News. Next, Where is the world in its fight against COVID-19? Professor Alan Whiteside, a health policy expert of global standing, gave us his assessment.
2: Well, I think, as has always been the case, it varies depending on where in the world you are. For example, it really hasn't turned into a huge problem in most of East Asia. I think of China, Taiwan, Japan. Uh, It's been fought against quite successfully in Oceania, and I think of Australia and New Zealand. It probably never was going to be as big a problem as we feared in Africa, and that's to do with the age profiles of the populations. So what we're doing there seems to be working uh, from, a, from an epidemiological point of view, although it's catastrophic economically. So that leaves us with the places where COVID is a very serious problem for life, and that is North America and uh, Europe.
1: And do you think these tougher lockdowns are justified in Europe?
2: Well, I think what it shows is, again, we're scrambling for answers. And when we talk about t- tougher lockdowns, the emphasis should be on tougher. They're not the lockdowns of the first round, where effectively people weren't allowed to leave their homes. There is an exception to that. Oh, it's France, where you actually have to have a permit, uh, which you can write out yourself and sign to show why you're out on the streets. In most other places, The lockdowns are slightly more nuanced. We're desperately trying not to stop children from going to school. Uh, So there are new lockdowns, but they aren't the same as the first round of lockdowns. They're more nuanced. We are trying to find our way with this. And it has to be remembered that this is a new epidemic that is transmitted in some new and unique ways. But uh, I'm always reminded, I forget who the great man was, I think it was Keynes, said, when the facts change, I change my mind, what do you do? We have to keep trying, and it has to be trial and error. Where I think the biggest problem lies is with governments saying, we've got the answer, and then changing their advice and saying, no, now we've got the answer, and then a few months or weeks later saying, oh, no, no, we were wrong, but now we've got the answer and you must obey us.
1: How do you think South Africa is coping with the COVID-19 pandemic?
2: Remarkably well. South Africa seems to have the epidemic in terms of case numbers under control to a degree which we wouldn't have really uh, expected, uh, but they are managing the epidemic. I think they're not managing the economic fallout, but the epidemic they are certainly dealing with
1: we asked Professor Whiteside whether he supports the Great Barrington Declaration, a movement for alternatives to lockdowns, with some of its South African signatories, like Nick Hudson of Panda, saying the use of face masks is part of a fake narrative.
2: Well, my feeling on the Great Barrington Declaration, it's a group of, uh, for the most part, well-intentioned idiots. And uh, to say that masks are not necessary is... is (laughs) Oh, dear. It reminds me of Tabo and Becky and the AIDS epidemic. Uh, there are certain things which we know work, and one of them is masks. And uh, I would suggest we carry on doing that. I, have, 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 the, whoever makes these comments needs to remind themselves that in Japan and much of Asia, people routinely wear face masks when they're unwell. And it protects uh, the entire population against colds and influenza. You know, we used to laugh about seeing people of Asian origin walking through airports with face masks. I think if we could see their mouths, they'd be laughing at us now.
1: Many people are saying we just need a vaccine and then the world can go back to normal again. From your experience of working with HIV, AIDS, is it fair to say we might never see a vaccine?
2: No, I think we will on this one. I think the pressure, it's such a global problem uh, and the pressure is so great from so many people. I do believe that vaccines will be developed at some point HIV is very different. This is a much simpler disease to respond to. The question which we should be asking is how effective will that vaccine be? Um, Because if we get one which rolls out quickly and is, say, 40% effective, and then we develop one that's 80% effective, we've got a bit of a problem there. So what we really do need to do is collectively hold our breaths for the most effective vaccine that we can get within a given time period. And remember, there are 198 candidate, 198 studies going on around the world to try and develop a vaccine. I would be conservative and I'd say there will be a vaccine available by um, the northern summer next year.
1: Let's have a closer look at the economic consequences of the COVID-19 containment measures uh, with the possibility that another spike might be coming there.
2: I think you should, uh, South Africa should be easing up on the containment measures. I think, as with so many, a lot of it was poorly thought out. I mean, banning flip-flops, for heaven's sake? That was bizarre. So, I think they have to be uh, advised by the science, but they have to know that the science has changed. And the message for the South African population is we are being advised by the science, and we know it's changing. And that's really the key thing I believe in terms of responding to this epidemic but remember that South Africa saw a spike in cases uh, where in the end of July there were 13,000 new cases
1: Professor Whiteside says there are some rays of hope
2: the moves with the vaccines are good news Uh, we are moving fairly rapidly on that We're certainly seeing some amazingly good improvements in uh, the treatment of people who fall ill. The number of people who die who uh, uh, are admitted to hospital has declined considerably. So treatment is getting there. Um, So those sorts of things are happening and they are encouraging. I also think, though, that... uh, there is a coming together in many communities which there hadn't been before and I hope that political leadership can capitalize on that and ensure that it feeds into other areas of life.
1: Do you think that there have been any developments in this whole fight against COVID-19 that are helping the fight against HIV-AIDS?
2: That's a really interesting question um, because what we saw was would what we knew from the fight against HIV-AIDS Help in the fight against COVID? Yes, I think so. Um, I think uh, there are the proximate uh, things that we're doing here, which is hand washing, mask wearing, which means that people who are immunocompromised will have uh, fewer attacks on their immune systems. So it becomes a healthier society if we do follow those base, basic precautions, even social distancing. I think that the other thing that will happen is people realize that health is not just a matter for people who are uh, infected with HIV or something else. It's, it's it's something that affects all of us. And I think that that will mean that that gets more attention. But we have to set it against the fact that uh, the money for HIV will probably diminish because of COVID and the attention to HIV will diminish because of this new um, infectious disease.
1: I have seen reports that this might be helping in the fight against TB.
2: Absolutely. Well, it's a respiratory infection, isn't it? So anything that deals with respiratory infections will be of benefit in the fight against TB. Yeah. The problem with this epidemic is its long-term impact on our psyches, our incomes, our employment, and who we are as people.
1: Coming up, we hear from our partners at Bloomberg why the obsession with vaccines may be a bad strategy.
3: U.S. government's COVID-19 strategy has been to rely on developing vaccines and treatments rather than emphasize measures to limit the spread of the disease. That could delay the return to normal life for most Americans. While the U.S. has committed more than $10 billion to develop new shots to fight COVID-19, about half of Americans in a Gallup poll said they are wary of taking them. And One report suggests that if the vaccine program has any hiccups, we could be living with the virus well into 2023. I spoke with health reporter Naomi Kresge, who reported on the cost of the government's focus on developing drugs rather than changing behavior. Many hopes in the U.S. and, of course, worldwide are pinned on the arrival of a vaccine for controlling this pandemic. I was just wondering, what are some of the dangers in putting so much weight on the availability of
4: a vaccine? So one significant danger in doing that would be if you pinned all of your hopes on a vaccine and did not do all of the other things that are necessary to try to, um, control the pandemic before a vaccine comes. Um, and you know, the fact of the matter is that just the availability of a vaccine saying a vaccine is approved does not mean that suddenly everyone will immediately be immunized. Um, it will take time to distribute vaccine, um, there will be, you know, priorities will need to be set. Uh, probably, vaccine will go first to to healthcare workers and to people with chronic conditions. Um, it will take a long time before uh, before enough of the population can be vaccinated to achieve um, herd immunity via vaccination. Um, we talked with Marie paul Keeney, the research director at INSERM, which is a French health science institute, and she's a former WHO official. And she told us a vaccine isn't a magic wand. Um, It won't be a quick fix, she said, even if it is effective.
3: And let's talk about efficacy, you know, particularly in the U.S. and, you know, what has been put out by the FDA. What are the requirements for how effective a vaccine has to be to be approved?
4: So the FDA has said that um, they would give emergency authorization to a vaccine, which is 50 percent effective, which means that it's what it sounds like. It could work in, in half of people. Um, and the, the factor at play there is that the less effective a vaccine is, the more people need to take it in order to protect the population as a whole. And so This is one of these um, kind of wild cards. You know, we won't know how long it will take to vaccinate enough people to really protect the population until we know how effective these vaccines that are in final tests right now actually turn out to be. And that raises an issue of trust.
3: Many Americans have said they may not trust the first COVID-19 vaccines that are available or may not be willing to take a vaccine at all. So what
4: needs to happen,
3: in in your view, to convince Americans to be vaccinated?
4: Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, probably some pretty good PR, (laughs) some good marketing. (laughs) Um, We interviewed somebody who... Compared, um, you know, the situation to past vaccination campaigns, you know, back in the day when Elvis was getting vaccinated um, on TV in order to get people to take a polio vaccine, um, you know, reluctance has been shown um, to be high in some in some surveys. People are um, are a little bit. Let's say some people are waiting to see, you know, what the what the results will be for the vaccines that are being tested. So,
3: you've highlighted a number of issues that even if and when a vaccine is available, as you say, it's not a magic wand, the risk of COVID-19 will not just go away immediately. So, let's talk a little bit more about timelines. You know, in terms of a best case scenario, what would need to happen to significantly lower the risk of COVID-19? And realistically, how soon do you think
4: that's, that's achievable? So we actually went to a consulting company based in London called Airfinity to crunch some of these numbers. So according to their calculations, in order to vaccinate enough people in the U.S. to achieve herd immunity... Through vaccination by mid July of 2021, the government would need for all six vaccines that it has purchased in advance to succeed. So, all six of these would have to work and be safe, and it would need to get all of the optional extra allocations that are in those purchase deals as well. Um, So, each of these deals, there's kind of a base level of vaccine in the deal, and then there's an optional extra amount. And so the government, the U.S. government, would need to get to that base level, and then they would also need to get the optional extra amount. And then obviously all six vac- vaccines would have to work. And if all of the, those things can happen, sort of a perfect case scenario, depending on how well, how well the vaccine works, of course, they could potentially have quelled the virus by mid-July of next year. Now, if let's say only four of the six vaccines are approved, And that would actually be pretty good. You know, in drug development, things are not guaranteed to work. And so it's not unreasonable to think that only four could be approved. Um, And then let's say production and supply run into some issues. So maybe those are each about 20% lower than expected. Then just based on those things, the U.S. could see delays in achieving that herd immunity level that would run into the second quarter of 2023, according to these calculations, So there's a broad band of potential timelines and really a lot of factors at play.
3: I mean, when we're talking about lowering the risk of COVID-19, is there a threshold? Is there an actual number which we're, we're measuring that by?
4: So one way to look at that would be how many people need to be immune in society in order for the virus not to spread? and who has said that number is probably about 60 or 70%. so you need 60 or 70% of people that have immunity for the virus not to spread and you know one way to achieve that would be for those people to have gotten sick. but obviously that's not ideal because then you're running into potentially very large numbers of people who are getting very sick. um so when we talk about that 60 to 70% threshold We're generally talking about, okay, 60 to 70% of people have been vaccinated and they have immunity that way.
3: Okay, so, you know, we've been largely focusing on this timeline as it relates to the US. And in terms of access, in terms of distribution, that might. differ in other countries, and I was wondering if you had looked into just what different scenarios we might be seeing in other countries versus the U.S. when we talk about lowering this risk and and maybe
4: even a potential timeline. So this is such a multi-pronged question to unpack. The U.S. will probably have more access to vaccine than many countries in the world just because it's a wealthy country. It's a country that has already put a lot of money into finding these vaccines, and it has advanced purchase deals for vaccines. There was an Oxfam study that came out last month that found that wealthy nations that represent just 13% of the world's population already have essentially cornered more than half of the promised doses of leading vaccine candidates. So they've already tied up more than half of the capacity of vaccines that are being developed in advanced purchase deals, which leaves the vast majority of the world's population um, looking to get access to vaccine probably later. So that's one factor, is that the U.S., by virtue of wealth, is actually in pretty good shape in terms of getting access to vaccine. The other factor, of course, is that you can achieve some level of safety and social reopening by controlling the the virus through other methods before a vaccine is present. And so there are countries that are really doing more with testing, tracing, mask wearing, all of these kinds of really boring, unsexy, basic public health measures that have been shown in some countries to really work well against the virus.
3: Is there anything that either the U.S. government should be doing or, or Americans can be doing to try and bring about this best case scenario in terms of lowering the risk of COVID-19 by July 2021? Is there anything we can be doing right now or should be doing right now?
4: So there are things that can be done on a government level and on an individual level. Um, On the government level, the WHO is urging all governments to invest in testing to promote mask wearing. And I also just want to mention treatments. There are treatments that are being developed for the virus and new treatment strategies. And I talked to one uh, company CEO from Novartis yesterday, actually, who said that he thinks that in the next year, doctors will slowly refine these treatments. They'll figure out better ways to treat people, figure out when to use certain medicines, and that also will be a mitigating measure to ensure that if people do get sick, they’re able to get better quicker.
0: Inside COVID-19 from. News.
1: Next, we hear from Discovery Vitality about how it has awarded extra points to its members to compensate for the challenges of leading a healthy life in the era of COVID-19. Business founder Alec Hogg caught up with Discovery Vitality on its innovative program.
0: Dr. Mapunda is the head of wellness at Discovery Vitality. It's been an interesting few months uh, for most of us stuck at home. Okay, it's not level five anymore, but uh, a lot of good eating and a lot of good exercising has seems to have gone out of the window for many South Africans. Are you seeing a similar trend within the Vitality members?
5: Alec, it has most certainly been an interesting year for most of us. The pandemic and the associated lockdown has really changed life as we know it. And um, as you rightly point out, prior to the pandemic, we've had a physical inactivity challenge. We were not as active as we should have been, we were not eating as well as we should. And what the pandemic and the associated lockdown did is that it exacerbated those strains. And and I'll give you an example about what I mean using physical um, activity an example. You will recall that um, one of the measures that the government took to try and flatten the curve was to introduce a state of national disaster and lockdown, where from lockdown level five, mobility was severely restricted. And what we saw, was that in done level five? There was a forty-eight percent reduction as compared to the baseline, which is March, in physical activity, and there was a combination of just there not being options for people to exercise, but also a combination of people being overwhelmed and not being able to capitalize on other ways of exercising that we were not familiar to. And as the lockdown levels started to ease and it became easier to exercise outdoors um, and people started getting accustomed to the way of living in this new normal, we started to see um, a recovery where things were not as worse as they were in lockdown level 5-4 Um, And now if we compare to to baseline, there's a 14% reduction in activity. But what is encouraging, though, is is our members have taken on um, wearing devices because we can track activity outdoors. And for those members that exercise um, using their wearable devices, they've been able to maintain their pre-lockdown activity and they've been resilient throughout this process. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's been a challenging year, but... But I think you can see that people are adapting, actually. So if, uh, you've, got, if you've
0: got a device, in other words, uh, it kind of reminds you that you've got to remain active and those people, everything fine or most of those people are back to pre-lockdown levels. Is that, do I understand you correctly?
5: Yeah, Alec, like, definitely. I mean, having a device, uh, you're able to actually visualize what you do. Um, I think that motivates people. The ability to track what you do motivates people and you're able to see where you are relative to where you were previously. But they also have the advantage that you could go outside earlier than you could go to gym. Gyms only opened now. So you were able to go outside a lot earlier and, and people started realizing the benefits of being outdoors over and above um, physical activity, just the mental clarity and the stress reduction that you get from being outdoors. So they definitely are back to pre-lockdown levels um, and they're meeting their goals um, as per before.
0: That's So uh, another interesting point, Uh, I've recently joined, rejoined a golf club. So I'm I'm one of your, uh, I fit very squarely into the group that you're talking about, But but engaging with the people at the club, they told me that they've had more new members joining them in the past month than they've had, in 20 years, it just sounds quite extraordinary that South Africans maybe, as a result of lockdown, are starting to wake up and saying, hey, we got to start exercising in some way.
5: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Alec. I mean, I think lockdown, though challenging as it was, it has brought health to the forefront of people's minds. It's actually a lot more apparent for people now that looking after your health actually yields dividends, your ability to protect yourself from COVID over and above wearing a mask and sanitizing and keeping your physical distance is you looking after your health and also coupled with the fact that the key message around um, protecting ourselves is if you are going to engage, be outdoors as much as possible that has led to a boon in this outdoor activities like you're talking about your golf and I was mentioning earlier about devices and people running outdoors so I think it's been a confluence of factors that has led to just a boon in people actually embracing devices and embracing The outdoors.
0: What about healthy eating?
5: So healthy eating is an interesting one where um, as the year started, our members' shopping behaviors hadn't changed um, uh, compared to the previous year. But what we saw was that at the start of lockdown, um, the proportion of healthy food purchased was starting to deteriorate. um, And one can imagine where you know what you're accustomed to buying, restaurants were closed, other uh, means of 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 people accessing healthier foods, like you're not allowed to go outdoors, you had to limit the number of times that you can go to a shop to buy food, you had to now start getting used to do I order online, or how do I actually um, get my healthy food. So a combination of that and the stress of being at home led to people actually buying a lot of convenience meals, etc., And what we did is because we know we've got this benefit um, where we incentivize purchasing healthy food, we doubled that that benefit where members could get up to 50% cash back on healthy food purchases. And what we saw was phenomenal to say with the introduction of that campaign, uh, people actually um, started buying healthier food purchases than they bought before. And it was just a nice nudge um, to just remind people that, Challenging as it is, looking after your health is a priority, and we use behavioural science principles and understanding of member behaviour to nudge our members to buy healthier food, especially during a time where health was important.
0: Have you used any other similar incentives?
5: On physical activity, we had a campaign on devices. This was around April. When we started seeing that those members with devices are a lot more resilient, we did a campaign to make devices a lot more accessible. So we realized that it's, p- people were taken long to adapt to exercising at home, and it was important for us to actually protect our members by enabling them to exercise. So we ran a campaign on devices, and the uptake was equally phenomenal, um, and members embraced that fully.
0: So the whole behavioral science, which is, underlies vitality, really works, and you've had an example of it now during lockdown.
5: Yeah, it's, it's actually quite phenomenal to see, Alec, in that it, we, have, we continue to see that incentives work to shift behavior. I mean, I, I recall a study we did, um, the Apple Watch study, um, which is the cornerstone of, of our work in incentivizing healthy behavior, where we saw that by using incentives and behavioral science principles, we're able to show that those members that have an Apple Watch increase their physical activity by more than 34%. And it was a combination of the device, yes, um, the, the, the access to it based on how the benefit is structured, but also the behavioral science principle where you essentially can have the Apple Watch on us um, if you meet your physical activity goals. And and people like that idea that I have this device on vitality and the thought that if I miss my goal now I have to pay in, it works on the psychology and it actually drives. To to do the right behavior. So, we continue to see that incentives are a key part of Discovery's shared value model, which allows us to give our members value. And by value, I also include health in there. But also, as a business, we benefit as a result.
0: So, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, if you can't uh, see what's going on, you aren't going to manage it either, or you aren't going to eat healthier or exercise more. But how how have you, um, within the Vitality program, you've got millions of members, how are they benefiting by following those incentives?
5: So, the key crux of how our members benefit from Discovery is underpinned by Discovery's shared value model, where by leveraging incentives, And behavioral science, we yield value for members, and I'll I'll break it down into threefold. So there's the health value, which we've touched on a little bit. There is ultimate longevity from being healthy, and is what I would term value, which is around rewards and financial um, benefits for members. From a health perspective, anyone who engages in physical activity, you know in the short term that great feeling that comes with having exercise, those endorphins, and how it sets the tone for your day. In the short term. Um, And that allows our members to actually show up in their day to day lives a lot more fully. But then the medium to long term benefits, as we know, and our data has continuously shown that those members that engage in vitality and physical activity, they claim less. And claiming less means you're less sick, right? Mm -hmm. And it also means that potentially if you do become unwell, the severity of your illness is not as much as someone who's not active. So therein lies a benefit, huge benefit that members would value because it allows you to spend most of your days um, in good health, thus enhancing the quality of your life. And we've also seen a reduction in mortality uh, because the healthier you are, the more well you are, the longer you live, and that touches on longevity. So not only are you living longer, but your, your long life is infused with a quality that is as a result of you being healthy and then what our members value a lot more which is top of mind is they value that that actually comes at their benefit where there's a financial reward there's a value in being in vitality that members are able to access I'll give you an example Alex. using active reward because we've spoken about physical activity we've got a system where we personalize goals for members every week to incentivize them to reach their physical activity goals if you reach your goals you spin a tile, you get a certain miles value and you can spend your discovery miles in the Vitality Mall. Now on the Vitality Mall, we've got an assortment of retailers and members get the prices at less than they would get out there. So you're actually able to save money By exercising, we give you money in terms of discovery miles and you spend them in the vitality mall. So that's one example about how members get value. But also when you engage in physical activity, when you screen, we award you with points and points are a proxy for health. We award you with points that accumulate and as they accumulate, you reach a certain status based on how much you engage. The discovery status allows you to even get richer discounts on flights and accommodation. Mm. And members actually value that. So the the actual value, it's almost like vitality pays itself and you earn more. You're able to access a lifestyle that you may not have been able to afford. And, and your ticket to access in that lifestyle is looking after yourself and your family.
0: What about the impact that has happened because of COVID-19? It's through no fault of your members. They've had to stay at home. They've perhaps not eaten so healthily, etc. What happens to the points earned this year relative, say, to a normal year? Are you rebalancing them in some way?
5: I mean, a part of the effects of that pandemic and the associated lockdown was that members were no longer able to engage with the program in a way that they were able to previously. Uh, For example, um, the big points and in category in discovery is vitality health check. And when the key message is stay at home as much as possible, we found that our members heeded that call and they stayed home in order to protect themselves, but also protect others. So that has resulted in people not being able to maximize points. And though we've seen a lot of people being resilient in any physical activity, again, under the umbrella of staying at home, for those members that did fitness assessments, they were not able to go. Because part of us in the curve is to stay at home. So what we didn't want to do is to let our members be affected by circumstances that were outside of their control. And we also wanted to ensure that we keep them motivated to engage because ultimately it is through our members being motivated that they continue to engage in the right behaviors which benefit their health and which allows them to get value from the program. So, what we did is we need to make sure that our members are not worse off. And in doing that and in being fair to them, being that we're cognizant of the circumstances that the lockdown imposed, we made a decision that we will award our members their points from last year. From a screening perspective, if you did a health check last year and you were not able to do it this year, we'll award you your points from last year. If you did your health check last year and this year, and your points last year were higher, we would give you the higher of the two points. That's what we did on the health checks. On the fitness side, we would award you your fitness points from Jan to September, either last year or they said, depending on which is higher. And the reason we kept at September is we know the importance of continuously engaging in physical activity. We are seeing that there are multiple options now to engage in physical activity and we are seeing in the numbers that our members are actually highly engaged in physical activity and they are reaching their goals. So we want them to start getting used to adopting those behaviours. So it was rather important for our members to know that we understand the context. We do not want them to be worse off. However, we want them to continue to be motivated to adopt the right behaviours.
1: brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next time.
0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.